No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schaap. Anyone who's ever been to a baseball game knows just how much the setting matters. The splendid green of the field itself and also the building which surrounds the field and the stands. Paul Goldberger is a Pulitzer Prize winning architecture critic. His new book just published this week is Ballpark, Baseball in the American City. It's a pleasure to welcome to the sporting life, Paul Goldberger. Paul, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jeremy. Great to be here. You know, when we talk about um, baseball and its role in American society, the national pastime, we can certainly throw around a lot of cliches going back to uh, anyone who wants to know the heart and soul of America had better learn baseball. What, what do we, what does, what does a ballpark tell us about the place in which it is situated? Well, ballparks, unlike almost any other sporting venue, football stadiums, basketball arenas, hockey rinks, anything, ballparks really do, uh, really are imbued with the character of the place that they're in. Um, and in fact, they traditionally have all been different. You know, when, when you're in a basketball court, you sort of want it to feel more or less like every other basketball court, but not a baseball field. They're all different. They all speak to their cities, or they should, at least. And the thing that was so fascinating to me was discovering that the history of ballparks more or less tracks the whole history of American cities and urban places. And it's all there. Everything from uh, the way we used to be very oriented in tight, dense urban neighborhoods to the way we moved to suburban sprawl to the way and since the 1990s, people have been trying to reconnect to the city again. We're speaking with Paul Goldberger, the Pulitzer Prize winning architecture critic about his new book, Ballpark Baseball in the American City. I grew up in New York, uh, you know, both sides of my family from Flatbush. Ebbets Field holds that place in, in, you know, in the lore of the city and the country, the way that, um, certainly the polo grounds did in its way in upper Manhattan and so forth. When you talk about a, a ballpark, and we call them ballparks, not stadiums initially. Definitely, definitely. And we still, we still should, except for the few that don't deserve to be called ballparks. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and I grew up going to Shea Stadium, right. which was one of those places exactly. that did not exactly. deserve. Me too. Me too. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but how, how does, um, a ballpark, uh, and the way it's built, uh, reflect life in the particular place, uh, w- where it is? Well, you know, the, the, the early ones and those few survivors we have from that period were kind of densely woven into the urban fabric. They were parts of a neighborhood. You could walk to them and from them, and they felt connected to everything. They were not concrete donuts sitting in a sea of asphalt parked cars. <laughs> and, and so, you know, in, in, now, of course, you could say that for a lot of American history in the 20th century, uh, Acres, acres and acres of parked cars reflect the America we were too. Certainly, and you know, but that's 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 not a, not not as pleasant a vision of America as as a nice 
you know, old fashioned city neighborhood, I think. Yeah, the suburbanization of America and and white flight from the inner cities, all these things. Which was key to the Dodgers decision to leave Brooklyn, really. Um and uh, uh the fact that so much so much of their fan base had left uh, the neighborhood had left the city, was not traveling either by foot or by subway to the ballpark, which had been the original intention. Uh, and, you know, Walter O'Malley in the 50s was frustrated by the fact that uh, he thought Ebbets was dirty, tired, worn out, uh, a sort of mess, no way to improve it, small, uh, and no way to improve it, expand it, or even add parking which is what he'd wanted to do. I mean, he, he, he wanted to sort of serve a suburban audience. He thought that that was the future. And, you know, that was back when in the 50s, nobody had yet begun to think that there might be a dark side to the automobile. It was cool. It was fun. It was liberating. You know, we were going to make more freeways and more backyards for everybody, and it was all going to be great. Uh, it turned out to be a little more complicated than that, but nobody really knew that in the 50s. So, so there's a connection, of course, too, as you're saying, between, you know, the way Americans started to live in, in the post-war era, in the Robert Moses-ification of, of our cities and our suburbs, and it, the ballpark flows from that. The ballpark pretty much shows us how we wanted to live at every phase of American history since baseball began. That's the really interesting thing. I mean, it, 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 it tells us so much about everything else beyond the sport itself, which of course is, is key. But, you know, the, the, the casualness of it, the way it was part of an urban neighborhood you walked to, then it got more and more grandiose, pretty much at the time that America was becoming more of a world power. In the early 20th century, we started building grander ballparks like Scheib Park in Philadelphia, which became um, Connie Mack Stadium before it was torn down, uh, and of course, Ebbets Field, and so many of the other early ones, which really were kind of grand civic buildings at just the time that the country was sort of flexing its muscles. And, you know, at each phase, even up to the present time, it shows us really what we are, what we want out of public space. And the ballpark is really one of the great American public spaces. You know, I, I, I think we, we need to think of it that way and not just as an athletic venue. Paul Goldberger's new book is Ballpark, Baseball in the American City. So if our ballparks are a representation of what we want in our society and where we're heading, if they're a microcosm of our cultural moments um, frozen in time, what, what did the construction of the Astrodome represent? Ah, okay. That's a great question. Um, what the construction of the Astrodome represented was a couple of things. First, just Texas, you know, grandiosity and belief that it could be bigger and grander than any place else. It also represented um, the, the move of baseball, of course, into climate where once um, professional baseball hadn't been played. So, it was too hot. You know, it was too, it was hot. too hot. Exactly. Who wants to sit you know, in the Texas sun or the Florida sun for three hours, day after day after day. So, um, the, 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 and it represented this belief that was very much part of America in the 1960s that big American technology could overcome any problem at all. Just, you know, throw more money at it, air condition it, make a bigger and bigger room and throw it, fill it with air conditioners and you've got this great place. Well, it was kind of cool and wonderful and exciting, 
but it also was terrible for baseball, <laughs> which is in its in its in its in its DNA is really an outdoor game, not that that should be played in connection with nature, not in an indoor room, no matter how big the room is. Um, and of course, we also know that, like so many of these things, this idea that. Uh, bigger is better, in fact, was not so true some of the time in history. But, you know, it's also true that the ballpark has shown some of the less good sides of us as well as many of the good sides. I mean, even the ballparks that we look back at and love, um, many of the early ones um, were segregated, not just racially, but also economically. You know, in a lot of the early ballparks, the bleachers were had a separate entrance separate bathrooms and fences that made it impossible for people in the cheap seats to actually even walk into another part of the ballpark. So the 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 myth of egalitarianism is exactly that, a myth in ballparks. It's a myth. It's a myth. It's a myth. In fact, yes. And in fact, there were even a couple of early ballparks that had things you could call precursors of the skyboxes of today, too. Um, I think, once again, you know, it was showing what we really were in both our good and bad sides. Paul Goldberger's new book is Ballpark, Baseball in the American City. It's a fascinating look at at baseball uh, stadiums, ballparks, however we want to describe them and their role uh, in 20th century America and beyond. So how does everything... If we want to put it this way, get back on track. How do we, how do we return to the roots of the ballpark with Camden Yards? And, and what kind of a watershed moment is the opening of Camden Yards? Right. Well, well, you, Jeremy, you, you just said it, you know, two words, Camden Yards. I mean, Baltimore really was an amazing watershed moment. Um, you know, there, there had been a growing sense through uh, the 70s and 80s that, you know, this world of big concrete sort of brutalist buildings was not making people very happy. And, uh, there was beginning to be a revolution against that in, in the world of architecture and in city planning and so forth. I think it was kind of inevitable that it would make its way into baseball and just as baseball has followed so many other trends. And what happened was, uh, uh, a very lucky set of circumstances in the late 80s when uh, Camden Yards was being planned. The uh, Baltimore Orioles were run by Larry Lucchino, uh, a lawyer, uh, actually former basketball player at Princeton, um, and uh, a lawyer who was interested, who had been running the team for Edward Bennett Williams, the former owner. He had grown up in um, uh, Pittsburgh and loved Forbes Field, and his memories were of that. And uh, when Williams died, the team was bought by a, a New York investor named Eli Jacobs, who was a great architecture buff, sort of an architecture amateur, who you know knew a fair amount about it, uh, even though he had no professional connection to architecture. And he um, grew up in Boston and remembered Fenway Park. And so these two guys were running the team, and the plans had just begun for the new ballpark, but hadn't gone very far. The architects came in and showed them their first version, which was another concrete donut that uh, actually Eli Jacobs told me later looked so much like what eventually what soon was built for uh, Comiskey, for, right? New Comiskey Park, exactly. Um, now called Guaranteed Rate Field in Chicago. I had no idea that was the name of it. Now I can see. That, that. Right, I know. Well, well <laughs> we're worth forgetting. But anyway, um, so. Uh, 
he, that he said it looked so much like that, he was sure that they simply showed them the same plans. But anyway, uh, so they looked at them and they said, no, that's not what we want. We want something that makes us feel like um, the ballparks we grew up going to. And that's what we want. And we're not building something like this. And if, if you can't give it to us, we'll find an architect who can, basically. So that firm is called HOK Sport. Uh, to their credit, they went back to the drawing board and they produced um, Camden Yards. And then they, you know, with the zeal of converts, they completely uh, reversed course and became the most ardent proselytizers for this kind of old-fashioned inner-city ballpark uh, and started doing them in many, many other cities. Uh, but in fact, it wasn't literally going back to the past because, in fact, the whole idea was to, to have the feel of a traditional ballpark with the eccentricity and some things that were very were unique to that city and so forth, and yet still have the amenities of a more modern ballpark. So it's still bigger than something like Ebbets Field, it has, and it has plenty of bathrooms, which places like Ebbets Field never did. And it has you know, lots of places to eat, uh, which again, places like Ebbets Field never did and so forth. So it, it, it was the subtle integration of a, of a modern kind of program of amenities and the things that people want in the 20th century or 21st century with a building that just kind of feels good and feels right in its place and is integrated into the city. You know, I was in Baltimore last week and walked from the center of downtown over to the ballpark again. And I was amazed at how just beautifully it just kind of fits in. You just sort of take a walk and then there you are, as, which, which it just feels kind of natural in a, in a really wonderful way. It's a great ballpark. We're speaking with Paul Goldberger, the Pulitzer Prize winning architecture critic. His new book is Ballpark Baseball in the American City and... You know, Paul, before we let you go, um, it's been a, a pleasure having you on the show to discuss this. You know, as an architecture critic, as someone who has not spent most of his career writing about ballparks or arenas, um, how do you feel about the fact that I think it's fair to say more people feel these visceral connections to their Camden Yards or their City Field or their Pac Bell or their course than they do to the big civic institutions, the museums and the libraries and the university campuses that are that are part of the landscape of their cities as well. Sure. Well, uh, if if more people feel a connection to baseball, you know, so be it. I mean, we, we certainly don't have any shortage of people also these days feeling a connection to a great museum or you know some other civic building. I think I think. Today, people are pretty tuned into those things. And, and God knows, you know, the Metropolitan Museum in New York seems to be, you know, more crowded than City Field these days. So, so I'm not, I'm not sure I would. That could be a reflection of some other factors. Paul, right. But. Well, that's, that's true. And, and one, one really important thing to say is that wonderful as architecture is in making an emotional connection to a place and making you feel good when you're in it. Uh, I'm not going to pretend it can affect the outcome on the field. I mean, Baltimore, right? Baltimore this year is a pretty good proof of that, I think, right? Well, the configurations can make a difference, though. That's yes, for sure. That's true. Absolutely. Yeah. But right. Totally. And uh, but they can't alone, you know, guarantee a winning team. And so, uh, you know, there we are. But but the point is that people do have an emotional connection to these places. And that's something to celebrate. And it goes back to you know, way back into the mid-19th century, one of the most 
uh, surprising things for me when researching this book was how rich the history of ballparks was before things like Fenway and Ebbets and Wrigley Field and Tiger Stadium. Um, even before that sort of great golden age, there was amazing stuff done, most of it of wood, uh, most of it burned down. But almost all of it was really cool and interesting and was sort of where how we moved in stages toward that golden age and then kind of on to other stuff. And it just continues to evolve. Paul Goldberger's new book, fascinating new book, is Ballpark Baseball in the American City. It's really been a pleasure, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us here in The Sporting Life. Thank you. Great pleasure to talk. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. I'm Jeremy Schapp. And you can listen to new editions of The Sporting Life every Saturday and Sunday morning on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app, beginning at 6 a.m. Eastern Time.